0: This is Cognition, the podcast about cognitive psychology, neuroscience, philosophy, technology, the future of the human experience, and
1: other stuff we like. It's hosted by me, Joe Hardy. And by me, Rolf Nelson. Welcome to the show. All right.
0: Ready to talk about artificial life.
1: The article that we are looking at today or that we're basing our discussion today on is called the Past, Present, and Future of Artificial Life. This is a review article from a couple years ago, 2014, and it takes a look at the state of the field for artificial life.
0: What is artificial life?
1: What is artificial life?
0: Basically, it's like life made by a person rather than by nature.
1: I found this This article in this field, kind of fascinating. I have to say, jumping into it, I didn't know a whole lot about it, so I had to do a little background checking. I don't know what your background is on this, Joe.
0: Yeah, I didn't know anything about it either. I stumbled on this article because I was thinking about the question we were talking about, what would it be like to add consciousness to a machine? Would that be something that you would want to do? If you did want to do it, how would you do it? And I was looking for stuff around that, like how would you build consciousness? And and that's how I stumbled into this, this topic area.
1: I think it's an interesting, maybe that can be a, a section that we sort of devote to it, the relation between life and consciousness, because I think that's an interesting one, is it to what extent is the foundation of some sort of life necessary for consciousness and how much you need to know about the way that life works. Um, but one of the, so maybe we can, we can talk about that in a bit, but first sort of, I, I found the background of this field of study of artificial life, or they they call it a life, as in get-a, I suppose, <laughs> that's what, as in get. <laughs>
0: that's, what we, we, that's what we need to do.
1: <laughs> yeah, so the field itself, it's sort of a separate interdisciplinary topic that kind of has its own...
0: own journal
1: culture to it. Yeah, it has its own journal. I had to look at the journal a little bit and see what was going on with that. So as far as I could understand, so it basically kicked off in the mid 80s or so.
0: Right, right. And Langton,
1: Christopher Langton, he came up with all of these brilliant ideas around uh, complicated systems and how to conceptualize the idea of artificial life, what its goals should be, all that kind of stuff. And he did research for a while. He went to the the Santa Fe Institute, which is kind of a high-level think tank for really super smart people who think about issues of complexity, not just complex issues, but literally the issues of complexity. (laughs) (laughs) And then he stopped doing research presumably he's still alive maybe he's even listening to this late 1990s just basically dropped off the face of the earth does not seem to exist on the interwebs anymore and i could find no mention of him and then you know what happens to a field when you kind of lose its founder it continues on but it seems as though the field itself as a coherent uh, culture has has sort of it's dissipated a little bit. So it's, it, to me, I thought this was interesting just kind of thinking about the, the evolution of a field itself and how it was formed around this particular individual and had all these great ideas and continues to, I mean, there's a conference every year, although it sounds like maybe a little smaller than it used to be, not as much in the spotlight, but has sort of tapered off a bit.
0: That's really, yeah, that is really interesting. Uh, I think he might have been Destroyed by his own robot.
1: Oh, yeah. What did what maybe he maybe he came to know too much. Ah, maybe that's, that's it. That must be that must he be probably what it, is. Came, it was one of those research findings that was too mind blowing that he just he couldn't keep going. It couldn't be introduced to the world.
0: Or he somehow actually entered another plane or dimension of, of reality. And he's actually living there. He's, he's actually he's, the same age. He hasn't aged.
1: That seems likely. Well, give so after it, this, I, let's, I like go, let's go find him. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I bet he's. I bet he's impossible to find. Sounds like. I, it would be I, I looked at. I found some Reddit speculation about him that he had hobbies in boating and maybe he's out making boats now. Christopher Langton
0: Or, or lost at sea.
1: Yeah, or maybe he. Um, maybe he created an Atlantis some kind of under underwater underground layer
0: created he created life and he's living in that underground atlantis with his whole artificial life society
1: yeah i think it's i think that is what is going on that's because if you i mean if you did
0: that would you want to invite other i mean you just created your own whole world of artificial life that's made by you and exactly what you want it to be are you going to invite anybody else or let anybody know about it
1: this is rife for a movie this is a movie making opportunity yes or maybe even a book opportunity finding christopher langton
0: all the publishers and producers out there send us an email tweet tweet us
1: so the concept of artificial life or thinking about artificial life um they talk about you can do a Google search, basically a Google search on text for artificial life, and it was super popular in the 80s and 90s, which I guess is, you know, around this time Christopher Langton was doing his work, and the the field was sort of, had its most influential ideas, and then, but it was even more influential right around 1818, so if you can look at text from 1818, right around when Frankenstein came out by Mary Shelley, you
0: know there was there was this sudden spurt in in, in interest in artificial life at that at that moment.
1: Yeah, so Frankenstein, uh, so he gets life by just shooting a jolt of electricity through him. Hopefully, the ideas of the 1980s and 1990s are a little more complex than that, but I think it has the same sort of appeal to it, right? That you can you can create life, or you have this um, ability to. Well, I guess there's not a field of reanimation studies, but
0: <laughs> there should be. Yeah, there should be. Well, I mean, Frankenstein does get into some interesting philosophical questions about. Yeah, absolutely. Right. What is the nature of of a person?
1: Yes, it's. A, is it the same? Well, we should refer to him as Frankenstein's monster, since of course Frankenstein is a doctor, right?
0: Right. So the monster, you know, does the mon- monster have consciousness? Mm-hmm. Does the monster feel certainly in the book I think it makes it out that it comes across that the monster does does feel right. Mm-hmm. And then then the question becomes is the monster's feeling most like the brain that was in you know right, again? because
1: it was a brain it was a um patchwork of of a different uh, different brain and body parts.
0: Right revivified parts from different dug up or was it just cadavers
1: i don't from, know like, I, don't I don't remember i don't i, don't I, don't, I never it. actually i never read the original book i think most of what i remember about that is from young frankenstein right <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> i did read it but it's it's lost now
1: so the culture of this field of a life or artificial life so again, it does seem to be this kind of distinct group of ideas. So it's an interdisciplinary topic. I found it sort of interesting to look at some, I know this is just my way of trying to go out and understand it, looking at some of the recent papers in this area from the conference, the most recent conference, and the ones that appear in the journal. So just to get a size of the field, so the conference is now consolidated. there are a couple different conferences and now it's consolidated into a single one that's held once a year. There's about a hundred papers slash posters in it. Moderate to small. And I did find that a lot of the titles of the papers sounded as though they were a little tangential to the idea. So it it's it doesn't appear as though there are that many researchers out there who are specifically Getting into a field where they are trying to create life of some sort.
0: In that context, it makes sense to to dig in. I think a little bit into what is life, what is artificial life, and what are the different types of artificial life. Yeah, maybe a little bit. They define a few different types of artificial life. Where there's soft artificial life, uh, which would be like simulations in a computer, basically, so software. Hard artificial life. We have hardware like robots and wet artificial life, which synthesizes living systems from biochemical systems, biochemical substances. So the idea that any kind of like wet lab stuff would be like wet A life, any kind of robots or, or any other hardware implementations would be hard A life, and then software implementations would be soft A life.
1: So, basically, like uh computer simulations, robots, and frankensteins
0: that's right that's right. I think the Frankensteins they're they're talking about are, are really kind of much smaller systems where you're trying to basically figure out how to create properties uh, of lifelike systems
1: so that... they're really working with uh, molecular at a molecular molecular uh, level at rather a, than at a molecular a, level rather than plugging arms into. Sockets and stuff like that, right?
0: They're not working with with string with like like sutures and and right. and that kind of thing. Yeah, it's probably worth thinking a little bit about what 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 we mean by life and, yeah. and a, what are some of the characteristics because it helps, I think, frame some of the discussion. One of the concepts is that life is self-reproducing and self-sustaining,
1: right? So that, I wonder, I. I... I was trying to get a sense of, it's a really interesting question. So what what exactly do we mean when we say that something's alive? And I think maybe one of the goals of a life is to kind of sharpen the ideas uh, and our intuitions about what life actually is. Um, right. It's hard to think of a set of necessary and sufficient conditions for life because all of the ideas that we might come up with, like, that it has to be self-replicating we could imagine a system that is self-replicating but is not it doesn't really feel to us like it's alive but i guess we we kind of have a cluster of conditions that we describe that sort of apply to life and maybe the, i think the definitions that are used here are intentionally a little bit vague because we don't want to get pinned down too much in saying that life is one thing or life is not another thing
0: right i mean i the idea of self-replicating already yeah. is 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 problematic because it is neither necessary nor sufficient for life to your point you right. could have a, a self-replicating system that is not alive you could have an a lot something that is alive that could not replicate itself exactly There's millions and millions of examples just take yeah. a mule for example
1: so a mule is a hybrid of what a donkey and a horse that's right cannot have offspring but yet is clearly alive
0: it is absolutely alive no question about it a person
1: who a a person who doesn't have the ability to reproduce is clearly alive
0: just an old person
1: right right yeah (laughs) past their right past their prime yeah exactly so
0: right so that that's already like not very helpful
1: well i thought about this it's it's clearly a part of the concept of life that there's some kind of self-replication that it in order to compete in the environment for you know evolutionarily you have to be able to reproduce yourself i think in computational models it's easy easy to get something that can reproduce itself right within a computer program you can have something reproduce easily but it's not it's not obvious to me that it's easy to make something in the real world right now that can Reproduce itself and uh, propagate. Is there any? I wonder if there are any examples of that even
0: something that's not just a an artifactual tweak of something that was already alive, right? Something that was not alive, right. but now you made it alive and it's it's truly reproducing itself.
1: A robot that can make another robot,
0: right? Right. And that's, that's, that's the kind of thing that you would need to really say that you've created. I mean, you could have a robot that was alive, but wouldn't be able to replicate itself. I
1: think. You can I mean, imagine that. You can certainly you imagine that.
0: But then I guess what, what they're saying is their their goals are just a little bit more aggressive, right? right. So sure, that would be alive, but that's, I guess what they're saying, that's not the same as artificial life. We want to create a whole society, or we want to create not just one organism, but Whole set of organisms that can evolve and learn, act autonomously.
1: Well, and certainly, all of the creatures that we think of as alive now came from an environment that um, was self-replicating. So even the even a mule comes from the same kind of environment that you know it produces a horse and it produces a donkey, and stretches way back into you know, original evolution of unicellular organisms and all that. So it's along the same continuum.
0: No, exactly. And and I think that raises a good point, which is when we talk about artificial intelligence, we're always talking about this. Oh, we're not always. So often we're spending a lot of time talking about this very disembodied Mm -hmm. process. I think the flavor of what uh, this A-life thought process is, is getting at is actually life is by its very nature something that exists in an environment and interacts with that environment. To really feel like something is alive, it somehow needs to interact and evolve with within its environment.
1: And I think that makes a lot of sense. It seems as though the field, this field, came about as people are having these sorts of realizations about artificial intelligence. Um, I know that Rodney Brooks was part of this. Um, this structure, Rodney Brooks. So, do you know, are you familiar with him or, do you know, I'm him? not, no, no. So he's this, he's an MIT professor. I think he's retired, but he's done a lot of robotic stuff. Uh, there's this really cool movie a couple of years ago called fast, cheap and out of control. And it's, it's called fast cheap and out of control because that was the name of one of his papers that thinks about robots as swarms that are behaving in the environment rather than programmed symbolic systems. Right. That it's really about yeah, just like you say, being embodied and being out there in the world and interacting with the world and that's how that's how complex behaviors are formed not by programming them explicitly. That relates to this idea of embodied cognition, that cognition, thinking it's a huge group of people now that self-identify as as embodied cognition folks that I think it's really important to take a look at the environment and consider the importance of the world when we're thinking about how we think rather than just thinking of our brains as this separate kind of disembodied um, abstract kind of idea
0: the, the abstract disembodied brain can solve a lot of problems and I think a lot of the problems that we're thinking about when we think about AI systems today uh, in computers you know for example, natural language processing, I think is a great mm-hmm. example of can be really disembodied and and work pretty well and do some interesting stuff, but it's also quite limited and not at all like what our brains mostly do mm-hmm. <laughs> right most of what our brains do has nothing to do with Solving symbolic logic problems
1: it's funny, and it it feels like that's so important to being human, but it turns out that you can you can do it entirely entirely differently. What do you mean? Well, like uh chess, right? It feels like uh, this human ability, and I think we've talked about this before that you can play chess that's nothing like how a human would play it and do much better even though it seems like you need rationality and reason, same with language, like you're talking about language processing, that you can do this fairly well in an abstract sort of way. That's nothing like the way that human beings actually do it. And it still works.
0: Right. Right. Absolutely.
1: Some of the stuff that I find interesting in this topic is um, based on emergent kinds of behaviors for uh, creatures like ants or bees or swarms of birds so that you get this kind of emergent organization that comes out of out of individuals seems to be a popular topic in this area
0: yeah very much so one of the one of the terms related to this area that that came up and i I mentioned it to you in this email that i sent earlier was the idea of inactive or inactivism Mm. and so i'm just came up again in this paper and I think it relates to this whole thing, and I'm just looking at the Wikipedia page right now, and it says enactivism argues that cognition arises through a dynamic interaction between an acting organism and its environment. And it says it claims our environment is one which we selectively create through our capa- our capacities to interact with the world. So it's really emphasizing this closed loop, sensory, cognitive, motor, and action interaction between the agent and and the environment and, and how it cognition itself doesn't make sense outside of that environment.
1: Yeah, that's a tough one to jump right into. Uh, personally I identify with some of the goals and some of the ideas behind this, but I I don't understand how this can be the full framework for understanding how cognition works. Not to digress too much here, but people in this area make really strong claims about how much this is true that, and particularly that if we could not interact with the environment, if we couldn't move around and, you know, sort of poke things and, and move around in the world, that we literally would not be able to perceive or understand anything about the world itself. I think this makes weird predictions that someone with locked in syndrome, someone that couldn't or someone that's completely paralyzed wouldn't be able to actually perceive anything at all because they're not able to move, and it takes motion in order to perceive in the first place. So I feel like some of the strong claims of this are, to me, obviously false. You know, in in perception, we're familiar with J.J. Um, Gibson and the yeah. idea of ecological optics, that the way that perception works is hugely informed by the environment. So if you wanna if you want to understand how perception operates, you should not necessarily be looking at the brain, but you should be looking at the kinds of information that come to you in the environment. And that makes a lot of sense and goes a long way. But I, I I do feel like it can't be the only story. And maybe this is partially my intellectual background. I I don't sympathize with that view entirely.
0: Direct perception is the term, right, that, that mm-hmm. we use to talk about the J.J. Gibson worldview of the idea that the perception itself is given to you by the affordances of the information uh, about objects and motions in the world. So mm-hmm. that the chair is perceived somehow directly as having the affordance of being sit-onable.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I think it's, I I think it has a similar characteristic. I agree with you. One hundred percent in this world I had this I was thinking about J.J. Gibson as as we were talking about in activism mm. as well I, I have the same i sympathize with your view I, I I agree with you in the sense that it doesn't feel wholly satisfying but I also think that it is useful and I think what what was good about direct perception and and thinking about the world that way is that it emphasized how important the structure of the world is and how our brains evolved to process that information and that structure. If you th- as you're thinking about artificial intelligence or even artificial life, thinking about the nature and structure of the world and how building a system that can be robust uh, and you know, evolve within that world, it's, it's super important to think about the characteristics and the nature of that world.
1: This is an important central topic in some of this stuff. And I think this is probably something that was important to the thinking in the eighties and nineties too. Probably central to it. Maybe we can jump. What we
0: what would we we were originally saying we we're gonna make a connection there at the beginning we were talking about?
1: Oh, I don't remember. I don't either. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know <laughs> it was important but uh, that's okay
0: <laughs> that's totally fine
1: I want I don't want to skip ahead too much I'm oh. so one of the one of the things that I think is that springs up when I think about this stuff is the game of life is this something that you're familiar with so Conway's game of life
0: oh, I was thinking about the board game
1: ah uh, yeah that's what I would initially think of the game of life is this it's super simple simulation that's meant to show some kinds of emergent properties. And it's been a while, I guess, since I've seen instantiations of it. But this is something from um, the 70s or 80s, I guess, where it, it's sort of like a uh, just a pixel array where each pixel affects the one next to it and you can have things that appear and they'll propagate and move, and you can make simple kinds of behaviors. So you can create something that will just kind of creep across the page. Just from this really simple set of rules, you can create some interesting emergent kinds of properties and you know, little bits will interact with each other and sort of zip around the screen in different sorts of ways you can create you know, things that will destroy other things that they'll come in contact with. So, that, I mean, that's one of the things I initially think about when I consider this idea of artificial life is that kind of a simulation where you're trying to create initial starting conditions and an environment that you can sort of stir up and watch, watch things that are interesting happen. That one is a, a really basic one. And I know that if you, you know, if you look up Conway's Game of Life, you'll be able to find versions of it that you could play around with or or sort of understand what I'm talking about, it gets across this basic idea where you sort of get an evolution from certain starting conditions and kind of watching emergent behavior appear. Um, And you can can think about this as the emergent stuff that you get from brains being wired up in interesting ways or from uh, social animals living in groups, whether it's ants or bats or people that display interesting kinds of emergent behavior that might affect the way that they evolve. So anyway, that's, wor- that's something worth checking out.
0: Yeah. And I think that's, that's exactly the, the kind of thing that, that we're getting at here with, yeah, trying to figure out if we can create a little microcosm where life can kind of, or lifelike properties can, can happen, we can learn something about the nature of life, what it is, how it works. And then maybe we can create something that's useful also so, or something uh, that will destroy us all, you know,
1: or something that will destroy us all.
0: Did you see that uh, that that uh, news about the, the scientist in China who edited the genes of that twins so they uh, wouldn't have HIV or wouldn't be be able to. to no, get? No, I did not HIV. see
1: that. I heard something really vague about that. So what what exactly happened? So,
0: yeah, you use CRISPR.
1: CRISPR, of course,
0: of course, everything it's all about CRISPR these days.
1: All CRISPR, all CRISPR,
0: all the time. But yeah, so he—you know—he so he created the first gene-edited humans.
1: So these are alive, existing alive. human beings.
0: And he was like, "Yeah, this is cool because now they're not going to get AIDS." I mean, like, they're, they're little babies. I mean, sure, they might be exposed to AIDS, but they also might not. There's lots of other ways to avoid it. But then it turns out, oh. Sorry, I missed. He missed. <laughs> Didn't do it quite right.
1: Yeah. They did get and they did get AIDS.
0: No, I know it wasn't even that. It's just like they 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 could they could be exposed to other genetic you know anomalies basically.
1: <laughs> well, if there's one thing that Jeff Goldblum taught me, it's that you just never know what's going to happen when you start playing God.
0: That's true. That's true. You could end up like some crazy looking fly situation.
1: Yeah, the fly, and then Jurassic Park. Right. Actually, some of this stuff coincides with right around that time, the fly in Jurassic, the original Jurassic Park, too.
0: Yeah, Jurassic Park is a great example. I mean, they're, they're it's not artificial, well, I mean, that, that begs the question, is that a life or is that not a life? You know, I guess they, they did do some modifications, right? They didn't, you know, they took these fossils, basically pulled out DNA out of the fossils and then kind of replicated it. So they didn't create the DNA, but. certainly created the environment that allowed the whole thing to happen
1: well certainly if it's if it's not artificial life it's i I would say it's probably not considered artificial life because it's so similar but it fits within this this idea of an organism existing within that larger environment and that larger ecosphere so things are pretty well tuned right now well not with people around i suppose because we're killing off all the rest of the life on the planet but things are otherwise pretty well tuned so that things survive in harmony fairly well, and then you pop something else in the environment and results are gonna be pretty unpredictable. Chaos theory was right, you know, rise of chaos theory and popularity of chaos theory was around the time that life was popular too. So I think this is all pretty closely related. And these are, uh, these these most of these people that are doing this are computer scientists too. Other fields got into the game, biologists get into it. But a lot of this stuff was computer scientists thinking about this. And, and computer and science,
0: for sure. I mean, it's, when you talk about soft AI, especially, mm-hmm, uh, yeah. and even hard AI, where you, I mean, sorry, sorry, uh, soft A life and hard A life.
1: So robots, to get, too, yeah. Yeah,
0: robots, software. Uh, and then that's where you get the question of at what point is the simulation life. And at what point is it just a simulation that has lifelike properties? And they have this distinction in the paper between strong a life, which is saying, well, life itself is a property of these autonomous agents. Therefore, if you create systems that have life like Like. properties, then that is also life.
1: You just have to call them alive.
0: Right. And then, you know, versus weak A life, which is saying, no, it's just a simulation. You can make a, a simulation of, that operates very, very similarly to water molecules. You can simulate water molecules and has all the relational properties of water molecules, but the computer doesn't get wet.
1: It's not actually wet. And this so, is directly this is directly lifted from strong AI and weak AI, so that concept that, if you make something that's functionally equivalent to a brain and and acts functionally the same as a person then you've got to call it conscious that's the concept the whole concept of strong ai you could program if you can program a computer to behave exactly the same as a person then you've got to call it a person and grant it consciousness so i think the this a life follows in that um that's in the same footsteps. thread. yeah, yeah. absolutely
0: so how do we, how I, do we feel about that? I mean,
1: I, I feel like you know, there's something that seems much more tractable about life. <laughs> I know that seems kind of, <laughs> I, I, it's funny to say that life is an easy problem or relatively easy, but it certainly feels more tractable than problems of consciousness and awareness. Right. Uh,
0: well, we have no, we have no problem saying that animals are alive. There's, we have yeah. zero problems. So, I, I think. It's just easier to, for us to accept that something else is alive than for us to accept that something else is conscious.
1: It feels it has, like th- there's been there's so much progress in understanding how life works that the question itself doesn't seem as important. So the concept of Elon Vital, the idea that you know this is what people used to think about life is that there was some substance that inhabited a living body and then when you died it just kind of was no longer there and life was life just consisted of this substance you know sort of maybe a kind of a spirit that disappears and then you're dead that concept itself just goes away once you once you start to understand more about metabolic processes once you understand more cellular mechanisms of how life works once you can explain all this stuff in reductionist terms, you can figure out how, you know, how your organ, the organs of your body work, how the cells that make up these organs work, and you understand it from a molecular level. It all fits together fairly well. And you can explain it without having to resort to you know, some sort of mystical process or some mystical distinction between something that's alive and no longer alive. Um, So, it's not easy work. There's a lot to it. It's a complicated process, obviously. There's a lot going on in something that's alive, but it all seems tractable, even though we can't fully mimic a living system. Yeah, well, a lot about how life works.
0: Yeah, we understand a lot about how life works. It's also living systems can be pretty simple. Doesn't feel to us like conscious systems could be simple. Right. That may be just a fundamental misunderstanding on our parts, but it doesn't feel like that. But to your point, I mean, it, Sorry. It, maybe it's the case that all con- all living things have consciousness. Some people make that argument, in which case, you know, it's not really different.
1: Right. That's one way of resolving things, saying that, well, okay, that's just the cutoff is, you know, if it's alive, it's conscious. Right. To some degree, even if it's a tiny amount of conscious, a bacteria is still conscious because it's alive. It's interesting to think about even simple systems can exhibit a lot of complex kinds of behavior. What's the name of that worm? C. elegans. Neurons in the order of a couple hundred, you know, nothing compared to what we have, but still difficult to understand. And the, the behavior that emerges out of it is still nearly impossible to fully model correctly.
0: Right. Apparently, it's a nematode. 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 Small little guy. Yeah. No. These. I mean, these things are complex and they're difficult to to capture models. So even even like a, a computational model that that would even take into account all of what's going on in C. elegans is 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 beyond what we can do today. Mm-hmm. I mean, and then the question is, okay, so let's say you modeled it. All right. Then let's 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 put let put this together. Mm-hmm. So. Let's say you modeled C elegance perfectly. hmm The software would
1: not be alive. Would it? So if you've got so if you've got a worm that is, squ- is squiggling around on your screen and it's specified to the level of your of neurons, you may be even smaller.
0: Yeah, I mean to the level of every single You
1: can do every atom if you want.
0: Every atom. Let's do every atom. Yeah. Good at every atom. It's fully specified but it's just hanging out by itself. It's even hard to even think about what that even means because, right, the, the, what is this simulation doing? I mean, you could say, well, we simulate it to move as it would normally move, but it would just be then random.
1: Mm-hmm. This, is,
0: this is where you get into the embodiment thing because you have to mm-hmm. put it into some sort of environment.
1: For it to react to.
0: Yeah. It does start to get at this idea of, like, it's interesting. Okay, so, yeah, you have to put it into some sort of environment that it has to react to something. Let's say you put it into an, you know, and they simulated the entire environment of, say, like a, a small, small puddle of water.
1: Wherever nematodes hang out.
0: Yeah, I feel like they, they hang out in, maybe in like water. I don't That's know. That's my guess.
1: That's my guess. <laughs>
0: maybe mud, something they like that. They definitely
1: this. don't. They don't fly. I don't think.
0: No, they don't. They're not flying. So let's let's call it mud for the, and so like it's got a little mud in there, but it's by itself. It's not just with mud. So maybe whatever it eats. So let's say it could simulate it eating all these artificial, you know, simulated software things that it eats and it like metabolizes them
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and it would get diseases and and live and die. Is that alive?
1: Oh, you mean, uh, so if it's still a simulation on your computer?
0: It's in the computer. Yeah, it's in the computer. Can't leave the computer. (sighs)
1: So how far do the horizons of its world go?
0: I mean, let's just say, let's say we, we gave it, so we gave it, we gave it uh a small puddle of mud. A puddle. Yeah, and right now it's, it's just all by itself. It doesn't have any 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 other creatures in there.
1: So is it possible that the puddle of mud could be struck by lightning from a cloud that happens to be passing by? Sure. Maybe like a, a like a cow or something could step on it.
0: I think it, yeah. I think it feels it starts. I think if it's just by itself and it's what, what you see is that as soon as you it by itself you have to describe what by itself means and what you say if it's not with other creatures you have to think about what other creatures mean in this world mm-hmm. and if it's eating things it's probably eating something that was at some point alive so it doesn't oh, right this, so the food source not,
1: has to the food source has to come from maybe somewhere outside of the mud yeah exactly so
0: i i feel like as long as it's as long as you're constraining yourself in that way it doesn't feel like it's alive Well, you
1: want to, I guess what you're trying to mimic is all of the conditions under which it has evolved, right? Right. Uh, Anything relevant to how it can reproduce.
0: And also interact with other creatures feels important somehow.
1: Right. Behavior, so avoiding getting eaten.
0: Yeah. A lot of its interesting behaviors are going to be related to other autonomous agents.
1: Parasiting off other stuff, I don't...
0: Eating stuff... So then if you had like a mini C. elegans society, (laughs) I don't know. It's starting to feel a little more.
1: Now it feels like it's alive.
0: Not quite. Not quite. I don't know. What do you think? Let's say they could like replicate and they could replicate in ways that that was unpredictable.
1: This is a tough one because... I have to admit that I do have a little bit of biological bias here, and I don't know why that is. So if you have it on a computer, it's the information about a creature that's important, purely, you know, functionally, all the stuff that it can do. But I do have to say that it's still hard to imagine it as being alive if it's a simulation on a computer, even though all of the relevant stuff should be there.
0: Well, I guess that's the question, right? I think, I think that, that what, what I'm thinking is that all the relevant stuff cannot be there because there's all kinds of things that are not there. You have ones and zeros that represent mm-hmm. three-dimensional, four-dimensional structures in mm-hmm. space and time, but they're not the actual structures themselves. It's not the same thing. It's just not possible to actually perfectly replicate that doesn't it doesn't mean anything to say that you perfectly replicated.
1: I think that's just your that's just your four D bias. you just bias bias towards things that are in four dimensions. Right.
0: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But it doesn't feel like. I mean, maybe someday you could something would come along and it would make you feel differently about it. But I agree. It doesn't feel like it's even possible to put all the quote unquote important stuff in there. I think that our bias towards feeling like these simulations, our are, our are, are intelligence or, or our life, has to do more with just what, how our own consciousness tells us that these symbolic things are super important.
1: Right. We may judge it by how similar it is to us, and it's difficult to um, a little difficult to move past that point.
0: Right. Right. And then then it, so then okay, that's that's soft that's soft artificial life. So we're having a hard time getting there. Chris.
1: Yeah. We're seeing some I'm just imagining. I, I, I'm having. I'm imagining these uh, tiny little sea elegans that are swarming around on a computer, and I'm imagining giving them a tiny little blue pill or a tiny little red pill. See if they can escape the matrix. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which you <Yeah>. choose.
0: <laughs> I, I think that. So that's 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 like soft artificial okay, life.
1: so that's soft artificial life okay but what if
0: we started to build them out using non-organic
1: stuff so robots what, yeah. however robots, we can see, however again. we can imagine some artificially constructed non-biological thing that's out there but out there crucially in interacting with the environment
0: yeah and we've got a little let's say we put a little uh, petri dish full of mud or whatever they they like to hang out in uh-huh does it have to be? See, that's a, or, that's a question. Should it be mud or should it be artificial mud?
1: I think that the robot version. I I just think of some kind of robot with a camera and some way of moving around in the environment.
0: So, but we're putting the but, so we're putting the robot and it's in our environment. Yeah, not in the robot environment.
1: I assume that because that's the that seems like the whole advantage to this is that you can right. just pop it in the actual real world and. See how it interacts with the rest of the world, okay, and learn and learn from it.
0: Let's say if we can, we can build a little little thing that looks a little bit like a nematode and kind of squiggles around and eats whatever nem- nematodes eat.
1: Just but by like, made out of so made out of robot parts,
0: made of robot parts. So it just no DNA. It doesn't really get energy from the things that's it's eating. It's just kind of like just filtering it through. But it can move around. Still needs a battery. I mean, it's a Roomba at that point. Right that's not alive what would we have to do to make that thing be alive
1: i don't think i have a good intuition about that yeah except that it just needs a whole lot of behaviors that look like the kind of behaviors that living things exhibit
0: that's where it starts to become the thing about self-replication
1: yeah i thought that's where i was that's where i was thinking too that you know, you can mimic a few of the kinds of behaviors of living things, but God, self replication is an incredibly complex process and, and But I mean I guess I'm just you thinking can't, also you can't like... imagine thinking of a Roomba just, okay, so you can it can vacuum and it can move around and it can find its way back to the charger. Oh, and also it can replicate itself. <laughs> because that takes a lot of work. It does. Just in the dust that it vacuums up or something. It's
0: got a lot yeah it's got to have a lot of extra parts that it doesn't currently have, yeah, a lot of parts that it does not have right now, but it would feel it would feel way more convincing if it could as yeah. being alive right uh, it, it becomes a question right like how would how would the thing replicate itself if it needed a battery
1: it would have to be a pretty simple kind of robot in order to you know, the more complicated you make the robot, the more complicated it has to be to replicate it. So it has to be a fairly simple kind of thing that can replicate itself.
0: Yeah, when I think of the first self-replicating robots, I always think about one that would just simply build another one like itself out uh-huh. of the same kind of parts that it already has using a formula, you know, like a, a, a program. Yeah. You know, like a recipe that, that it has in its own memory, Is... memory stores.
1: Yeah, or just build another one like itself, and then just send it off into the world. And yeah, and it, could,
0: it, it could, it could, you know, mess around with it, make it a little different.
1: And then they would just keep multiplying and fill up as much space as it could out there in the world.
0: It wouldn't necessarily replicate itself from its own parts. It could maybe, you know, but even though know, it could have, certainly could download its own memory easily enough. That would be easy to do.
1: That would start convincing me that it's alive. It's getting there. <laughs> and we're starting there. to see what the Robo Apocalypse would look like. Um, yes, you because... start programming. You just start programming creatures that can replicate themselves, and they just keep doing that until they take up all the space. That's just like a Robo Apocalypse of just being squished by all of the robots that are filling up all the space. The Squish Apocalypse.
0: The Squish Apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so it's easy enough to imagine being able to build a robot that can build another one like itself and randomly vary whatever aspects of the design.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That's super easy to imagine. No problem. Mm-hmm. That doesn't feel necessarily alive. The thing that made it feel alive before is that we were kind of we were kind of talking about it like it was intentionally doing it.
1: Varying itself.
0: Right or even had the intention somehow of replicating itself.
1: The thing that gets at my the, the intuition about what is it that would feel alive and not feel alive, I think one of the reasons why this is difficult is just the, the huge leap in complexity from something that's not alive to something that is, is alive. This is probably one of the things that the field of A-Life is trying to understand is how life itself originally came from non-life how did right how did self-replicating the origins of life dna come about in the first place you know it's an immensely complicated structure there had to be some process by which it's gradually formed it didn't just spontaneously appear out of nowhere i think this may be one of the fundamental understandings that a field is trying to get at is how, you know, how does this, how does this go from really simple processes progressively build up to something that's more and more complicated? And then you get to, you know, something like DNA and single cell organisms and, you know, just straightforward path from there to us and all kinds of complicated life.
0: Right. Uh, These guys were talking about a distinction between metabolism first or replicator first approaches to the origins of life. So, did you first have like a, a thing that was able to move around and, like, we're not necessarily move, we probably have to move around, but would somehow be able to metabolize, or would you have to have something that would be able to replicate itself first? The first living thing or proto life was able to sustain itself essentially, right? But couldn't reproduce. Or you do start with a thing that could reproduce itself, but didn't really have any other. Life-like characteristics so the, the the classic the easier easier one of these to understand i think is the replicator first bottle which is the rna world hypothesis so life sort of starts with just a bunch of like random little strings of rna they're just you know they're molecules they just kind of came together through the way that chemical things kind of come together mm-hmm. and then they start just getting together in all different ways and uh and sort of, some sort of, of these
1: ways, uh, some of these ways are r- more robust than others.
0: Right, so it's like an evolution kind of thing starts kicking off.
1: This idea versus metabolism first and replicator first. It seems it has to be replicator first. That you just kind of start rolling by replicating and maybe some successive changes. It seems difficult for me to think of metabolism first as being realistic but maybe i just don't know this well enough to understand what that means right i don't either <laughs> okay so this side this other idea so there's another term in here that i don't know is this worth knowing autopoiesis autopoiesis
0: i had to look it up
1: i had to look it up too i have to yeah. admit yeah I had to it's not it a up. term that i was familiar with
0: I feel like I've heard it some somewhere before, but I don't. Think, I think when I previously heard it, I didn't choose to look it up.
1: So, uh autopoiesis just means a maintenance of organization. So, uh, I guess the idea that life is composed of uh, self organizing structures that are autonomous in some sort of way. That's what I get out of it. And yeah, I got. A, I got. Key, I got. It's the... a key point.
0: Right, I got self-reproducing and self-maintaining, so self, both self-reproducing and self-maintaining.
1: So there's some sort of self to it. In other words, there it, there has to be individuals.
0: Right. It's it can't some, just
1: be a big goop of. It can't just be a big gigantic goop of life. There's some sort of differentiation.
0: It implies that it has some membrane
1: that you know, separates it's... it from other stuff. Right. Yeah. Well, this is. I mean. These these sorts of things are interesting, I guess. When you, if you're a sci-fi writer and you're thinking about what life is like on other planets, and I bet you there are a bunch of, a life researchers that think about this quite a bit. You know what what sorts of features of life are more or less inevitable, and what sorts of features are, changeable. So if you've got uh you know if you've got an alien on planet Meatzorp that. Evolves in some kind of way. How much can we how much can we constrain what we would know about how this evolution would take place?
0: Yeah, you know, this is the whole thing where they talk they talk about silicon based versus carbon based life uh-huh. forms. Mm-hmm. You
1: know,
0: how would that make things look different? We have a hard time getting creative about this topic. <laughs> <laughs> I mean all of our aliens always have
1: heads and it's arms. It's true. And, legs. <laughs> and there's more <laughs> and of a, there's eyes and more, mouths
0: yeah. and ears and all this it's stuff. Just have
1: Something that's like a bigger head or something. Oh
0: yeah, or like three heads or like six at the arms. most,
1: they look like an octopus. But right. that's still something on Earth, right?
0: Right, exactly. I mean, if you think about like the Boston Dynamic robots that they make that, are, mm-hmm. that walk walk around, it's like that's amazing and awesome. Mm-hmm. Also, like probably the hardest fucking way you could ever build something to like do any of the tasks that it's supposed to do.
1: Right, which you could <laughs> do really straight, more straightforwardly. Right. In a particular way.
0: With, with a more purpose-built system.
1: But if you want a creature that has, you know, just imagine that alien on planet Meepsorp that has evolved by some sort of some process of evolution by natural selection. You know, what are the what are the possible ways that it can get around? I mean, it can fly or it can walk. I don't know. It can. Right. roll. Squirm. Roll, oh yeah, roll. It could roll. There's only so many ways you can move around that engineers haven't thought about, though. Exactly. There's so only so many physical possibilities. And I guess one of the things that a lot of this research is in mathematical modeling, you can imagine some constraints that environments are going to give mathematically. There are only, there are only so many optimal ways that you can move around and so many ways that you can reproduce effectively. That.
0: Right. I mean, I think a lot of it, though, has to do with if you're constraining yourself to, to four dimensions. Oh. Right. So if you start hanging out in like 10 dimensions, a whole different situation.
1: Yeah. I'm having a hard time imagining that.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, I don't. I don't have that ability at all. <laughs> yeah. So, that, you know, I think. Uh...
1: All right. So we have not solved all of the problems of life. I think this is a really interesting field and there's a lot of cool stuff in there. And just one point to wrap up with is the idea that a life is something that's kind of dispersed as a specific interdisciplinary topic. And it's something that exists more within, you know, biology, computer science, and all over the place. So it's been a, it's probably had a nice life cycle as um, with some core, ideas to it, it's probably dispersing a bit. Um, We can't make artificial life yet,